Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. And today we welcome back someone to the pod that we have had on previously albeit during the infancy of this podcast, a certain Angus MacDonald, previously mysteriously or unmysteriously, depending on how you see it, known as Mac in his previous episodes. Yes, we were very creative in coming up with an alias, which, let me see, would have been episode 40 and episode 58. If you haven't heard those episodes, then again, we recommend you listen to them. Part of the reason why we have asked Angus to come back on was because we enjoyed doing those episodes so much. I I still remember them very clearly. And if you want to reach out to Angus, then you can find him on Instagram at WatchMadMac. So welcome to the show again, Angus. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back and nice to see you, Lung Lung and Jackie as well. It's the first time, Jackie, that you and I have not the first time we've spoken in person, but the first time that we've had an opportunity to do the podcast. So it feels incredible that uh, those first uh, conversations with you were quite so long ago. And here you are. And I think you're probably around about your hundredth old podcast at, at the moment. So congratulations. I, I want to start by maybe just saying how how much enjoyment I've had from so many of, of podcasts that I've listened to. I think it's been a fantastic journey that you guys have been on and having had the chance to spend time with certainly Lung Lung and yourself Daniel in person I know how much you both got out of it and I'm sure Jacqueline yourself as well but just for the benefit of those who perhaps haven't had the opportunity to go back don't necessarily go and listen to mine I don't they're pretty gruesome um, in listening back to yourself but you've done some brilliant ones recently. I, I particularly enjoyed Silas as one. I particularly enjoyed the, the conversation with Edward Melo. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the one with Guido Tarani at Parmigiani. I think you've done some fantastic work and it's fantastic to listen to some of the industry speakers that you've got on and the fact that you've been able to get access to these people is a testament to your growth and success as well. So well done. Right, we can definitely have you on again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to well, hit my roots now. <laughs> but in light of that, Angus, um, we also want to extend you know, a big thank you for supporting the podcast in its early phase, especially I know how discreet you are as a collector. And I also understand you know, many publications and magazines asked you, approached you to do interviews on numerous occasions and, and you declined them. But when I came up to you, um, when I approached you, when when I approached you guys, uh, you Angus, um, you know, I know you decline a lot of interviews, and a lot of magazines have asked you to interview in the past, and you've yeah just turned them away. But when I approached you, it was you accepted and you supported this platform just out of pure support. So I was saying you clearly knew where the next big thing was coming from. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to give the struggling youth of the world this. Like, just take my charity, just take it. <laughs> all I heard was youth. All I heard was yeah, youth. No, okay. <laughs> um, 
the it, it, it took you a while to get me convinced to do this as well i have to say we, i think we went around the houses a few times before i agreed to do it but yeah i'm, I'm just super happy to anyway that's right so thing. we'll get on with the first question <clears throat> so you've just come back from surgery so first thing first how's the arm uh yeah thank you um yeah, on the road to recovery, I'll try and keep the story short. Um, if you have happened to listen to some of my previous podcasts, I'm uh, um, I'm big on the outdoors, so I do a lot of rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, mountaineering, cycling, stuff like that. Uh, and often the worst injuries come when you least expect them sometimes. And it was one of those careless, stupid moments when I was out trail running back in January in Hong Kong on a perfectly blue sky day that we get here in January at that time of year. Um, and I took a tumble and unbeknownst to me until three weeks later when we got the MRI scan results, I shattered my humerus in three places and tore the tendon off. So fairly major surgery with a, various bits of metal work being put back into my shoulder. And as a consequence, now I'm stuck in a sling for about six to eight weeks and uh, have limited mobility, but we'll get there. So we'll get there. Good, the good news is, and this is really important, my left hand, which is the one I wear my watch on, is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, do you think it's this outdoor personality of yours that allowed you to get the Vacheron overseas Everest? <laughs> Because you're one uh, of the lucky few to get that piece. Yeah, uh, there's a. I mean, that's a, a story in itself, isn't it? And in, you know, I did listen back. It's a long time since we did those podcasts with me in the infancy of, of the waiting list podcast. Um, and I did listen back to it, and I remember talking about Vacheron then. And I, I think I talked about how it was. Um, Vacheron Constantin was the very first manufacturer I ever visited. And, um, you know, my, my journey has taken me more towards Jeji Lecoutre and other brands, but I always still have a fondness for Vacheron. Um, and particularly when you go back through its heritage as well. But the story of the dual time Everest was an interesting one because I'd seen the, the, the piece here when Phillips were auctioning Corey Richards' own piece that he was given as the prototype. Uh, to go and attempt a new route on Everest, which ultimately was unsuccessful. And that's frankly irrelevant. The point was he was trying something and he was trying something that hadn't been attempted before. And that's the important part to me, rather than going and just treading a well-worn path, he was exploring and he was trying something new and different. And when I handled it, I, like many, many other people, I think were um, <laughs> badgering and uh, talking to anybody and anybody who may or may not listen or may or may not have any influence within the Richemont group saying, you need to make this piece. You know, this is, this is crying out to go into regular production. It's brilliant. I mean, the overseas line um, uh, has certainly in recent times been a great success for the brand. And interestingly, if you look at the recent uh, report that's come out from Morgan Stanley uh, and collaboration with the Geneva Consultancy, you can see the effect that uh, it is having for the brand's um, revenue. But they, there was no word that they were going to bring it out. 
And what happened was I was actually back in at my home in Switzerland last year, last summer, uh, just after I'd retired from work. No doubt that's something else we can talk about at some point. Um, uh, and I was taking three months out and I was up in the mountains just doing a lot of just trying to do stuff. And suddenly up pops this announcement that Vacheron had released 150 pieces of the dual time Everest and 150 pieces of the chronograph. And it's like, oh, hallelujah, fantastic. Oh, only 150 pieces. I'm never going to get one. Um, so I messaged uh, various friends in Richmond Brands back in Hong Kong and elsewhere, <laughs> saying, who is it I need to speak to um, within Vacheron? And, uh, and anyway, that resulted in a dialogue, a, a conversation going on with the retail brand, uh, Vacheron retail director here in Hong Kong by WhatsApp. Whilst I was in quarantine after I'd landed back in Hong Kong and I said, look, I know I'm nobody. I have no history with Vacheron. Um, but here's a little bit about me and here's why I think it's fantastic that you've brought this out. Um, uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the Himalayan Trust UK as well, which is Sir Edmund Hillary's charity uh, that he set up after him and Tenzing okay, um, uh successfully first climbed Everest in May 1953. And Ed's mission when setting up that charity was to pay back to the people in the Solukumbu region of Nepal uh, in the form of health and education for the support and welcome that he had received when climbing Everest. So, you know, I had this whole conversation going on with the Vacheron guy and I said, look, I'm not pushing you because everybody's going to be demanding a piece out of you. So, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be just another person demanding something that is in, unobtainable. But when I get out of quarantine, if you have a piece for me to be able to see, that would be amazing, that'd be fantastic. So that's how it kicked off. Um, and we left it at that. And then about two weeks after I got out of quarantine, I got a um, WhatsApp message from him saying, look, Angus, I, I'd, I'd love you to come in. To, we talked about meeting for a coffee. We've got a few museum pieces from Vacheron in uh, the principal boutique here in Hong Kong. Thought you'd like to come and see them. I'd like to introduce you to, to the um, boutique manager. Uh, um, here in Hong Kong and just to have a, that coffee that we talked about. So I did, I went in, I thought, fantastic, that's great. Let's go in and I spent the first hour just ogling and looking at all these vintage pieces and just my, you know, my breath being taken away by some of these beautiful vintage pieces, like the precursor to the Vacheron Constantin 1921 um, uh, and some of these classic you know, you can, if you think about, and I know one that's dear to your hearts, the Cartiers, the Cartier crash, and the different versions of that sort of era. Vacheron were doing some very unusual shape designs back in the twenties as well. So they had a lot of these pieces. So, and I could see them looking at their watches and saying, come on, Angus, um, something else we want to show you, talk to you about. Let's have a seat and have that coffee. So the first hour we've just been circling the boutique, looking at old pieces sat down, they bring out a box and he opens it up and lo and behold, there's an there's a overseas dual time Everest. And I said, oh, fantastic. That's so kind of you to let me see it. Thank you. 
And then he pulls it out and it's covered in plastic. And he said, why don't you try it on? I said, no, no, I don't. it's just good enough for me to be able to see it. Thank you. Um, and he said, no, it's covered in plastic. Don't worry. You know, it's all wrapped. Try it on your wrist. Tell us whether it lives up to your expectation, given that you tried on the original prototype. So I did. And then they took it back off me and took the plastic off so I could see it under a loop a little bit more close up and see the rotor with the relief of Everest from the Tibetan side, which was the side of the uh, mountain that, uh, that Corey Richards was approaching for his route uh, and was based off a photograph he'd taken. Um, and, uh, and then they said, oh, go on, try it on again. So no, look, this is somebody's watch. Uh, I'm not gonna try on somebody's watch. Uh, you must have known though. I didn't, honestly, I, Dan, oh. I, I reckon I'm massively naive. I really did not for one second register what was going on. I genuinely thought this was somebody else's watch that he was allowing me the, the, the opportunity to see and handle given the whole conversation right. that I genuinely did not expect it. But what then happened, he said, no, I try it on. I said, look, if I try it on, I'm gonna have to kill somebody. I mean, who's, who's watch? Whose is this that I have to go out there and kill to be able to get this piece? And and he is it was a superb piece of customer experience theater and a brilliant demonstration to me of uh, of how an individual uh, within a brand, be that whatever industry or retail type you choose, can make a difference. Because he just turned to me and he said, well, you're not going to kill yourself, are you, Angus? Uh, and it took about, maybe I'm getting a bit older, but it took a few seconds for that to register exactly what he meant by that. And then I just looked at him. I said, are you serious? And he said, yes, it's yours. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I consider myself very lucky, particularly given that I had no relationship with Vacheron Constantin here in Hong Kong whatsoever. Um, but I know... From speaking to them subsequently that I believe that they've been trying to do a bit more diligence around the allocation for those pieces and speaking to a few other people that I know who have received it uh, or who are or have been previously at Vacheron or within the Richemont group. I know that they're quite sensitive to these things. Uh, yeah, so I have a question. First of all, I'm so happy for you. Um, mm -hmm. I remember watching that auction live of the actual mm -hmm watch that went on to um, the Everest. Um, and and I think it was my first auction that I ever, wa uh, first watch auction that I ever watched online. Yeah, because back then um, I had a good friend that was working at Philips and she had just recently started at Philips at the beginning of that auction. So I was watching it to support her and who mm -hmm. knew that, you know, I would also get dragged into this, right? Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyways, I remember that one very, very clearly. And um, my question is, you know, we're all as collectors, um, we're all familiar with just how um, difficult allocation has become over the past few years, right? And um, as the secondary market goes, you know, very, uh, you know, premium times, X times premiums of the original retail. Like the brands do have to do their due diligence and allocate you know, pieces to right people. And you mentioned that 
you know, obviously you were very shocked because you didn't have that existing relationship with Vacheron. You haven't really bought pieces from them. So from your perspective, why, like, as someone who's just coming into the industry or is passionate about a particular watch that's really hard to get um, retail, what do you think is like the key determining factor in the brand's perspective that they see fit of allocating certain pieces to? Because, um, so that's my first kind of question. And then my second question um, in tangent to that is like, do you feel the need to be vocal about how a certain watch does fit into your personal life? And do you think that makes a difference? I'm gonna take the second question first. Yeah, sure. I think that's the easier one to deal with. And the answer is no, I, I don't feel the need to be vocal about why a particular watch would fit into my collection and why I'm pursuing it, if you like. Mm. Um, that might be simply a case of the good fortune that I may have built up and in terms of the relationships that I've built up through many, many years that have perhaps meant I don't need to push that quite so far in terms of an agenda when I'm looking for a piece. But another reason, well, there's probably two other reasons why I think my answer to that question, Jackie, is mm. no, would be first, as Daniel said at the opening, I'm trying not to be too out there in terms of my collection. Um, uh, I'm very happy sharing it with passionate fellow collectors and I've met great friends and I've enjoyed the process of that and I'm very open when I get to know people um, but there's still a little bit of a, a veil that I'm you know I'm quite happy to keep um, uh, and some degree of privacy okay. around it um, the the third one is that perhaps that question originates from a reality which is a lot of people are pursuing the same pieces mm -hmm. right now and therefore they're having to differentiate themselves to some extent as to why they should be worthy of getting that piece as opposed to another whereas um i don't feel consumed by that there's lots of great watchers out there uh, there are an am amazing pieces from brands that you know don't get the recognition they deserve mm. uh, and which are not as hard to come by and therefore maybe I'm more philosophical about it if I can't get a particular piece that's fine by me I already know I've got a collection that I'm very lucky and honored and happy and proud and humble to own but uh, if I miss out on a particular piece that's not going to be the end of the world for me so that's maybe my answer to the second question. The answer to the first question, which if I recall correctly, was around how do you, do you do develop that? How do you get to a point where you can get to the top of an allocation um, mm -hmm. process? If I can try and paraphrase. Well, I think that's about, I, I, I guess I talked about this way back when in, in my previous podcast. It's about integrity, it's about honesty. 
Um, and it's about the relationship. It's about building building a relationship with people and and you know you're not going in and speaking to people and every single time you go in it's about me 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 and what do i want what do i want it's about how are you how's your family you know how are things going uh, um having a conversation with people and getting to know them is an important part of this if you're genuinely committed to building up a long-term relationship so the motivation as to why you're pursuing a particular piece in some respects will behaviorally drive your the way in which you approach that chase if i can put it that way mm -hmm. um, and i would question the motivations so the motivations are am i pursuing it for the right reasons do i genuinely love this and i don't care if nobody else wants this piece that's the piece i like um, and I'm happy to, to, to have that piece in my collection versus everybody else. It's the herd instinct point, isn't it? You know, the herd mentality. And we're probably in the midst of a bit of a bubble of that right now anyway. Uh, the herd mentality, the chase, it's all after particular pieces. And we're seeing, you know, 4x, 5x, 10x times on, on certain pieces, uh, which... I find a little bit unhealthy. Well, I do find very unhealthy. Uh, and as a collector, it slightly takes away some of the enjoyment of the whole hobby, because yeah. that's what it is. It's a hobby. Uh, none of us need to be doing this. We're doing it because if we're genuinely a collector rather than, I'm gonna use the word, and it's a horrible one, rather than an investor, then if we're doing it as a collector, we're doing it, yeah, of course, everybody wants to preserve some value, but we're doing it out of passion. And the moment that passion starts to evaporate, so does uh, the pleasure in, in the collecting. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was a bit roundabout, Jackie. No, 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 it's, 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 a great, no it's a great way to answer it. The reason why I asked that question is I think I'm the least experienced out of the boutique experience out of the four of us. Mm -hmm. um, basically started buying pre-owned vintage and, and secondhand basically. And then recently on our um, few episodes in, in the past, we have started, you know, even with Silas, right. Started talking about how, just how hard it is to find um, uh, quality to value watches in the current, uh, you know, climate. So that's why, you know, Dan and I, we've, we've started to look towards, you know, brands such as like vintage Mamados trying to find value, right. Within the price point and, and where people might not be looking at. So, so I, I absolutely agree with you. Like when the price, ha the prices have been blown out of proportions, it's important to still keep that initial naivety if I may say that and and look for things that still kind of tingle your 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 heartstrings um but again like because I've never really had a boutique experience I was just so curious as to you know well first of all very curious as how you must have felt at that moment when they were like uh well don't kill yourself like that must have been such a um I also don't know how I would react but <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a great story. Great story. It was, it was a big surprise. And, and you know, I, I said, look, next time I'm able to get to Nepal, because I, I, you know, over 25 odd years, I've been visiting Nepal. You know, usually 
every couple of years at least, uh, whether it be to go climbing personally or whether it be to be doing work on behalf of the charity. Uh, I said, you know, the watch will go with me. You'll see it in its environment. It's not going to be a safe queen. It will get scratched up and get, and it has. I've been out on the trails here in Hong Kong with it on as well. So, um, uh, so here's, you know, I'm putting it out here right now. Nobody would ever want to buy my piece because it's going to have so many scratches on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I think it leads nicely to a question I have later, but you know, Angus, the watch market has changed significantly, significantly since we last interviewed you. We, mm -hmm. I don't think many people could have predicted it. Um, you know, I would like to hear your opinion. Um, why do you think it's changed the way it has? Why, why are these, why is this, uh, well, call it a phenomenon or, or a bubble or whatever you want to call it. Why, why is there one? And also, how is it specifically impacted your own watch journey? Right, so why has it changed? Um, why is there a bubble? And how has it impacted mine specifically? You can tell I was a lawyer in my previous life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, there's, there's a lot of complexity in that question in um, which please just shut me up if I start rambling on too much because I, I struggle to see how I can do this question proper justice. And I would say, you know, I'd said to Daniel, for the benefit of listeners, I said to Daniel, I didn't want to get um, any of the questions in advance and I was mm. happy to just respond to this on a totally free flow basis. Um, I wish you'd given me a heads up on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why, why has it changed? You, there are a number of, you know, data points out there which would indicate, you know, why it's changed. We are in year three, effectively, of COVID um, globally. And that has been a contributor to this change, undoubtedly. Uh, and in, in short, it's because people are staying at home, they're not spending their money on expensive holidays. Um, um, so, you know, it's a truism that, you know, in times of crisis, the rich continue to get richer. So at the very top, you know, little percentages of society, people are probably continuing to do extremely well. But where the big difference is, is perhaps more in, in the sort of middle income bracket, um, where they are now not spending money on other things and therefore have an outlet to perhaps spend it on luxury goods. Um, and you can see that actually in the financials and the, the reports coming through from some of the brands as well. It's, it's very clear that certain brands have been doing very strongly uh, in terms of their growth uh, over the time. So why has it changed COVID for one thing? Um, I think the continuing impact of social media, uh, you know, it's not new. Uh, it's certainly nothing new in the last two to three years. Uh, it goes back long, long before that. Um, but it's becoming more and more sophisticated. And whether it be through podcasts, whether it be through websites, the ability and opportunity to learn and educate oneself in the privacy of one's home about 
um, watchers uh, about the history behind brands, uh, about the heritage of brands and the heritage pieces, and how those in turn <coughs> develop and lead forward into the current models is far greater now than it was. You know, it's a, it's a growth it's a growth curve, and it's continuing to grow. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that, and that is connected, of course, to COVID because people have more time to sit at home and, and spend time on their laptop and study or chat with friends or look at websites and things like that. So I think those are two, two reasons. I think that the third is, and again, I think if you look at a lot of the, the reports, the impact of um, China uh, as a consumer, and you know, there's a big bucket there, and uh, I'm calling China as a consumer as, as a sort of very generalistic statement, but, but the impact of China and how that is changing the fortunes of brands is significant as well. So the last thing I would say is, I guess, as COVID is, um, you know, it was the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, here we are, and I guess by the time this is maybe published, middle of 2022, um, uh, um, it's two and a half years it's been going on. Um, People's behaviours have changed. You know, we're not going into work in suits and a tie anymore. Um, or, you know, men and women are less formal in what they're wearing a lot of the time. And there's perhaps been that move more towards sports, stainless, stainless steel sports watches. So I'm not the authority to opine on exact reasons as to why the, the prices have gone insane for your Rolex Daytonas, for your steel sports, Rolex watches, your APs, your Pateks, et cetera, the Vacherons now as well. But what I find positive about that, if I can turn what inherently I'm, as a collector, somewhat nervous about in terms of that bubble, but thinking about the positives, is how it's shined a light onto other brands. Mm. Uh, and given other brands the opportunity to fly. Uh, and, you know, perhaps we can come back to that, uh, but I, I might leave it at, at that. Um, so that tries to address the why has it changed question. Uh, why is there a bubble, I guess, is, is very much linked to that. It's supply and demand fundamentally. Uh, and the circumstances of COVID the use and dependency on social media as a forum for knowledge acquisition has driven new consumers to, in a very herd mentality sort of way, towards particular models. There's no, I don't have a criticism of that per se. Uh, I think what's, because we all seek validation. Uh, we all want validation in what we're doing. And uh, if you're new to um, watch collecting, then you do want to be, you do want to take some safe decisions, don't you? So there is safety in that. And the safety is from your peer validation. Uh, so that has created a little bit of a bubble. 
Mm. Um, and then lastly, how has it impacted me? Um, I, I don't feel that it has. Um, I think I'm at a stage now, I mean, Daniel, we haven't really talked about this, but part of the reason why I was somewhat more secretive when we did the first podcast was I was still working. I was um, leading the operations for and business for a UK headquartered um, large global institutional asset manager. And uh, I was very conscious that I didn't want attention on that in, as opposed to on the conversation we were having during the process of the podcast, which was about watches. And I didn't want any conflation between the two or uh, light being um, spilled across onto to what it was I did from a career perspective. Uh, and I knew at the point that we did the last podcast that I was going to be retiring and I'd planned my retirement for the summer of 2021. Um, and therefore I'm much more um, comfortable being open about who I am now. Um, but how has it impacted me? Well, the, the change is more self-inflicted, really. I'm retired, so I don't have the same income coming in. Um, so uh, I'd, I'd like to add, I've retired relatively young, by the way, as well. So uh, not compared to the three of you, of course, but, um, uh, you know, so I don't, now when I think about my collection, it's more about refining my collection rather than constantly being able to go out and just say, oh, I like that, I'll buy that. Um, I have to think a lot more carefully about what I'm doing and why I'm buying a piece. Uh, so I think that's probably, it hasn't really impacted me. I've still been very fortunate in some of the pieces I've been able to get over the last year and a half since we last spoke. Mm -hmm. I have a similar question, but um, Jess, it kind of links to the last thing that Dan asked you, but um, if you could bring something back, that the younger generation are probably missing out or quote unquote missing out on now mm. uh, in terms of watch collecting as a hobby, what would you bring back? Patience. Patience. Um, I would, I would um, say uh, for me, and I think from what I've listened and, and heard and read about you, Jacqueline, as well, uh, and Lindlin, obviously, I know you, but I think this is something, no, but I think, Jacqueline, this is something that you exhibit as well. You research. You're interested to research a particular piece and why. Uh, and for me, um, so Lindlin, to answer your question, I think patience is key. It's, it's about trying to... Um, we're in a we're in a disposable society, aren't we? So it, it's like we go to IKEA, we buy a set of bookshelves, and we throw them out when they fall apart. Um, uh, so I value and enjoy the hunting uh, of a piece and the rationalising of why I like and feel that a particular piece is is, is right in the collection. I'll often sit with a picture of it as a screensaver for months mm -hmm. um, while I'm hunting it. Uh, if it's a hard to get piece, if it's an older piece or it's a particular piece. And I'll, you know, it's the first thing I see when I load up the computer every day. Okay, do I still like it today? Does it still make sense to me? It's so, 
you know, the ability to be patient in the pursuit of pieces is something that I think we may have lost a little bit today because we are so, uh, okay, I want it and I want it now. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, sorry. I just want to say like, I'm smiling because I, I'm doing it too. But then the reason why I'm doing it is because like, I believe in the law of attraction and like you, your mind subconsciously work towards something if you see it and you have like a board but I'm just thinking, okay, if it worked for you and it worked for me, it must work. Like, <laughs> more people should do it. Well, you know, I think it, it, it's interesting because you miss out on pieces. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a classic example of this. Um, from my perspective, if one thinks about the biggest regrets or what have, we, what have I missed out on um, that I really wish I could wind back the clock and have... Mm -hmm. I pressed the button and gone for it. Uh, it would be an FP Jean T30. Mm. Um, and uh, it's, it's a piece I saw years and years and years ago at FP Jean's manufacturer and headquarters in the center of Geneva. I mean, I'm going back now 15 plus years. And I remember the awe that it created in me uh, of, of this particular piece. And I just thought one day, one day, one day. And even as recently as five years ago, six years ago, you know, I could have picked up one of those for less than a hundred thousand US dollars quite, quite comfortably. Um, uh, and I didn't because I always thought there would be a time that I could do it. And uh, it didn't make sense at that particular point in, in what I was doing and what I was collecting uh, for me to, to press the button and, and go for it. Whereas now, of course, the prices have gone stratospheric and uh, I, I can't see myself doing that now. So, you know, you can be too patient and then you miss the boat. But then I bring you back to the comment I made earlier about it doesn't really matter because there's so many other great pieces out there, yeah. as you know yourself. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, right. So um, next question, which kind of follows up to uh, Dan's last, uh, or actually your, your last uh, answer to Dan's question, Ingus, which is, um, you know, during these two and a half years or so, you've uh, gotten your JLC engraved, which we, saw in one of your most recent, yeah, there we go, um, Instagram posts. Um, so tell us that story and, and why did you decide to um, get, get that engraved and, and with a very special engraving? So um, again, it's, uh, the story is on my Instagram feed, but I'll try and keep it brief, which I'm not very good at doing usually. Um, but uh, when I was, I had always intended to retire somewhere between the, around mid fifties. Um, and when I moved out to Hong Kong seven years ago, back in 2015, it was always with a vision to establishing our offices here in Hong Kong, establishing them in Shanghai, achieving those goals. And then uh, I wanted to be able to, and I guess I'm fortunate enough to be in the, position where I did have the option to be able to retire 
at a you know a reasonably young age um, and to spend more time pursuing my passions i mean you know I, I want to spend a lot more time just on the periphery of the watch industry um just learning more and continuing to learn more but also spending more time back in the mountains and outdoors so i always sort of wondered what i would do to mark my retirement and um i knew how much an impact hong kong had made on me uh, both professionally and personally uh, and and how much it meant to me um, uh, in terms of you know my personal journey and so many different elements that contributed to my growth um, as I say both professionally and personally and so I was kicking around some ideas at one point and and I'd seen this concept of a, a flag and you know i'm scottish by background i'm a bit of a mongrel um but uh i'm you know scottish if, if you try and pin me down for sure um, born in singapore you know. scottish only for the rugby i think you support yeah. england in the ashes i mean that well, is confusing. You know, I, i've got to keep my mother happy daniel i mean she's english so i've got to keep her happy so i support england at cricket and scotland at rugby for sure um, uh, um, so I, I wanted to weave the theme of my, my journey from Scotland to Hong Kong. So we put together a, a concept of a, a, the two flags, Scottish uh, or a representation, they're not replications, but a representation of the Scottish flag and the Hong Kong flag. Uh, and also I remember well when I told my old team back in Edinburgh that I was moving out to uh, Hong Kong. And one of my members of staff, a young lawyer who was um, Chinese um, uh, from Hong Kong said, well, you have to have a Chinese name, Angus. I mean, it will be essential on your business card to have a Chinese name, just in the way as I, as a, as a Chinese person, have a, a Western name. Um, you've got to have a Chinese name because when you're traveling up into Shanghai or Beijing, you'll, you know, you'll need to present your card and so forth. So we, we developed my Chinese name uh, and I, I, I won't, I'm not going to try and butcher it by pronouncing it or indeed uh, to explain the, the meaning behind the characters. But if you look on my Instagram page, you'll see it on the, on the pictures. Um, but you know that's where the Mac comes from, of course. Um, the Mai. Can I just say <laughs> on something? You go, on you go, Jack. <laughs> I, uh, I googled your name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you your English name. Your English name. Yeah. And then because yeah. we were talking about you know Angus is coming up next week, and then I was just oh yeah I'll Google Angus and see what comes up, <laughs> and I added Hong Kong, and then your you know Angus last name Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you the photo later. Well, showed up all make all Mac burgers, <laughs> like this very specific <laughs> burger. I was like, and I shared it to the group. I was like, guys, you need to see this. Like, this is our guest next week. <laughs> if, if, if I had if I had a hundred hundred Hong Kong dollars for every time somebody said, "Are you connected to McDonald's and burgers?" I'd be I'd be I'd be able to afford all these stainless steel multiples <laughs> that, that they're going for now. Um, sadly, I'm not. 
but anyway, so with with the Shay Shay team, we we pulled together this sort of concept, and uh, I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then what astonished me most uh, was having made the decision. The watch obviously had to go back to Switzerland to mm. enamel in in um, Le Sentier, the the manufacturer, Shay uh, Shay and um, so engraved that first of all engrave it out and they enamel it um, uh, and it was the CEO here in Hong Kong uh, who came to me and said Angus we'd like this to be a gift from us um, uh, from from Gigi Lacoutre and from us wow. to, uh, mark your retirement and say thank you for mm. your support and, uh, over over 20 plus years 25 odd years, I guess, uh, with Shea which blew me away. I mean, again, you yeah. know, I've already given one example of customer service, but it, it, it properly left me uh, and continues in the telling of it to leave me quite moved um, uh, for, for something that, um, you know, is not insignificant uh, in terms of the time it takes to, mm. to do the cost maybe less so, but still there is a cost associated with mm -hmm. the execution of this, undoubtedly. Um, but more the thought uh, about it and the fact that a brand, which while still part of a, a major conglomerate now, has the ability and um, can can do that, just blew me away. I mean, I'm, I'm totally humbled by the fact that they did that for me and um i'm still a nobody when it comes to jj collecting um but uh yeah so i've given you two illustrations i suppose of, of how and the theme that i guess is emerging from these stories is about customer service um, mm. and how you know people can cement relationships through small steps and gestures which um, I'm not saying that they're small steps or small gestures, but they're maybe not massively significant as such, but can have a far greater and more meaningful impact with the, the recipient than the pure monetary value of it. And so, you know, I'm to totally blown away by that mm. gesture. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I something you mentioned earlier on in the podcast which is you know buying essentially what you like right there's many watches on the market that you can go for right you don't have to follow the hype right but one thing i know that you also consider is when you look you look at the brand you know because i, I think you look at you know there are a bunch of watches at a certain price point where you can just go out on a on a whim and just get them right and enjoy them but you also i i forget the feeling that you really want to invest in the relationship and the long-term thing. So you do consider the brand um, when you go into certain pieces. Uh, you know, you have, for example, you've mentioned two brands there, uh, JLC, um, AP. Um, Vacheron. That you've, Vacheron, that you're starting to invest your time into. Um, how do you decide which brands actually that you want to do that with? Because, you know, I would say... Langer is a brand that you could really go into, yeah. Uh, that really fits your personality, um, but it isn't something that you've like really invested into yet. Yet, 
<laughs> I love the I love the closing yet. Um, uh, thanks, Daniel. You're determined to get me in there, aren't you? You're, you're absolutely determined to draw me in. Um, uh, I, right. I'm going to start by saying, watch collecting for me fundamentally has to have romance attaching to it. Uh, it it's um, and yeah, I accept that this could be construed as being a very naive position, but I'm happy with that. I like that because the moment I lose the romance of collecting, I think I would lose the passion. So romance isn't necessarily logical, is it? Um, uh, so, um, I, I buy pieces because they speak to me or I connect with brands because relationships I form with people within those brands. Um, and that is, that's not necessarily born out of a pure, purely logical, you know, collection of all sorts of different points of data that lead me to conclude that, okay, it's gone over a tipping point of 78.7 in terms of my scale of thresholds, at which point I'm comfortable buying a particular watch. That's not how I approach this. It, it, it is a, a far more naive passion, a romantic um, story, I would suggest. Um, so I inherently value the, the more nimble and more approachable nature of smaller brands where you have the ability to get access to, to the watchmakers or watchmaker singular. Um, because of course that plays to the more romantic nature of it that me, I like, looking at and looking at the movement and playing with it and figuring it out and trying to understand it. Um, and having that access to the watchmakers allows you to further develop that mm. sort of naive appreciation, <clears throat> um, excuse me, um, uh, which is lost somewhat when you get into the, the mega brands. Um, uh, JJ, by contrast, of course, is a mega brand um, and part of a mega group, uh, a large conglomerate. But it's, it, it still tugs at my heartstrings um, because of the history it has within the industry over um, so many you know, centuries uh, in terms of forming and developing movements for other brands. Um, but also because it was one of the very first brands that I explored and uh, started to learn about and had the privilege and, and ability to go and visit and, and so forth. So they may be an outlier when you look at my collection in, it, in its entirety, but it's been there consistently with me on, on my journey uh, through the ups and through the downs. Um, and, you know, what more of a, of a statement of commitment is there than to get a piece engraved? Um, nobody will ever buy this. It's got my name on it. <laughs> and, um, it's of no interest to anybody else. Um, so, uh, and so much so that actually I'm going to take 
uh, and drop off my green reverso, tribute to reverso, my green one. Uh, and I'm actually asking them to, uh, and I, I will be paying for this, um, uh, um, to, to have something else engraved on the back of that one as well. Uh, mm. So I'm avoiding unsuccessfully your question about Langer. I mean, we, we've talked about this many times. I mean, it, for me, it's just a rabbit hole. I, there's arguably, well, there's maybe one piece, but yeah, I'm not a massive fan of the new stainless steel piece, but um, sports watch. But, you know, across the range of Langer, there's pretty much nothing I don't like. I love every single piece and their, their impact. And, um, you know, we've, it's easy to talk about the in-house chronograph movement mm. uh, on the data graph and how that was, you know, they predated Detect Philippe in developing their in-house um, um, chronograph movement. And actually, I think it, it was a lady um, uh, watchmaker who was integral to the development of that component. Forgive me, I can't remember her name. Um, but uh, um, so the impact it's had, its position, um, as a challenger to historically the, the, the principal three watchmakers of mm. EP, Vacheron and Patek. No, you know, I'm not sure that that stands true anymore. I think Langer is, is certainly well up there and probably beyond um, uh, those. But for me, as I was saying earlier, now that I am uh, sort of semi-retired, uh, retired, it is... Um, I'm, I'm more judicious and I have to be even more thoughtful about what I'm going to spend my money on. Um, uh, and you know, it may be that pieces have to go out in order for pieces to come in. Um, and I just know that if I started off down that Lango rabbit hole, I would get lost and I would be stuck down that rabbit hole for an awful long time, Daniel. <laughs> okay, okay. So something you mentioned in your answer there was that, you know, access to the watchmakers or watchmaker and building that relationship and understanding the piece is, you know, something that you do consider. You visited many manufacturers uh, last year during your trip to Switzerland. Can you share with us, you know, where you visited and any particular memorable moments for you? Yeah, um, I'd like to have visited a lot more and hopefully um, in the next few months, I'll have the chance to do so again, if I can get back to Switzerland. Um, uh, the, um, and in doing so, I'm doing it out of a, 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 a curiosity, inquisitiveness. I want to learn. Um, yeah, it'd be lovely to be able to have the, the the capital to be able to just buy everything you always wanted. But actually, in some respects, that would take some of the pleasure away from it because we talked about patience and needing to be um, more thoughtful about pieces that you buy sometimes. And um, over the course of the collecting journey, you undoubtedly make mistakes, you buy pieces. And then, so I think, you know, I remember we did a sort of, um, quick answer question of me in the last podcast of whether it was a no way or whether it was, yeah, short, you know, would I buy it and keep it for a while and then sell it? Or was this a, a, a you know, hold forever piece? And there's nothing wrong with buying pieces and selling them on for a while. But now I suppose I'm at a point where I, I'm less 
keen to do that. So I want to invest more of my time and I have more time now to be able to do this, to learn more about watchmakers. So there's a list of them out there that I really want to, to meet with. The, the, the one that was most memorable to me certainly was going in and meeting Reshep and Annabelle at uh, Acrivia. Um, uh, I first encountered Acrivia um, two, two, three years ago uh, for his piece for Only Watch, his chronometer, chronometer contemporane, which he uh, released for Only Watch a couple of years ago. And when it was exhibited here in Hong Kong, it was like, wow, um, it's the level of simplicity and elegance of the presentation was just stunning. Um, and uh, I, so I always knew I wanted to go in and spend time and ideally meet him and, and learn more. Uh, so I reached out to him and he, Annabelle, um, kindly said, look, why don't you and your, your wife come, come into the atelier and come and meet with us and spend a day with us. So we did, we, we'd been in uh, FP Jean, uh, went back into to FP Jean uh, as well in Geneva. And Acrivia is really not far away, talk, short walk um, from FP Jean's uh, manufacture in the center of Geneva. Geneva. And um, at the end of that, first visit with Reshep and Annabelle uh, and meeting Reshep's brother and the team, and there are only 11 of them, um, you know, it's a, it's a small team. Um, I just knew I wanted to learn more. But what I'd said to him when we met was, look, I'm not here to, to plea for you for a watch. I'm not going down on my knees to say, sell me a watch, sell me a watch. Um, I'm here because I'm inspired by what you've done. Uh, I love the fact, and I gave him a little bit of my history and how F.P. Jean was an important part of my, um, dare to say collection, but you know, I've got a number of F.P. Jean pieces for sure. Um, and, and Rechette started at F.P. Jean, so he started working. So for me, on one hand, I've got Francois Paul, who's, you know, um, probably, you know, he, he's changed the game in the independent watch space. Uh, one of a number of people who've changed the game. Um, and I am inspired and in awe of everything he, he's done. Uh, and he's perhaps towards the end of his career uh, as a watchmaker. Whereas here we have Reshep on the other hand, you know, 30 young early 30s, as uh, almost a protege. Uh, and I love that. So I wanted to learn more. And at the end of it, he said, Look, Angus, we need to spend longer. We, we, need, we need more time. I'd love you to come back and just come back to the atelier. Because he knew I was in Switzerland at my home for a couple of months. Uh, and he said, look, come back. Um, I'm developing the piece for Only Watch at the moment, uh, the next piece and the CC2. Um, uh, so that'll be finished by X date. And if you could, why don't you see if we can come back in after that and let's have lunch. So I did, so I went back, uh, took a two hour train ride from my home back into the center of Geneva, just to have lunch again with Annabelle and Reshef and sit down with them and learn more and 
just understand them more in the philosophy. I was really intrigued. I think one of the questions I was really intrigued about was why a Krivia and why Reshet Reshepi on the branding between the AK06 and the Chronometer Contemporary. Uh, and I, you know, he's talked about it enough, so I'm not sharing secrets here, but his humility about, well, when I started out, I wasn't sure anybody would want to buy a watch with my name on it. Um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's fundamentally what it was. And, and I said, well, no, it's, it, I, I want to buy the watch because it's got your name on it, because I'm, in, I'm buying, you know, if I'm a collector and we're fortunate enough at any point to buy one, it's I'm buying you because I'm buying your vision of what you're trying to do with the brand. I was inspired by that. I, I really, really, truly was inspired by that. I don't know if I'll ever get one of his pieces. Uh, I'd love to, but even if I don't, I told him I'll follow his journey and be there annoying him and popping into Geneva Atelier anytime I get the chance. <laughs> so that was I have a follow-up question. Um, I also uh, had the opportunity to visit the Atelier um, in November of last year. And I was going during the only watch auctions and um, yeah. Uh, the other, I mean, all, all the other auctions actually. So it was really, a really busy time for them. Yeah. And uh, I went alone and, and they were very gracious to give me their time. Uh, met Richard, my, met uh, Annabelle and Jeff Dett, um, and really wanted to meet Mr. Hagman. Like that was, <laughs> yes, I went there to meet Richard and Annabelle, but I really wanted to meet Mr. Hagman, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like if I had to choose, like, but I mean, I don't <laughs> want to, but if I had to, um, and, and so the first time I went, uh, he wasn't there because he was, uh, off on, uh, oh yeah, he was off for the day because he only works in the mornings and I went in the yeah, afternoon sure. and, uh, Annabelle said, well, like, why don't you come back? And then, and then to, to meet with him and then we can have lunch together. I said, oh yeah, I would, I would absolutely love that. So I went back on the second time, but they were so busy, couldn't really work out lunchtime, but I, I got to meet with Mr. Hagman and that was uh, like one of the highlights of, of my trip. And um, although I speak very um, rudimentary French, um, he was so patient with me and, and showing me the tools and his work table and every little thing that I was inquisitive about. He had, he was patient enough to explain to me. And I think at one point, Annabelle had to go out and take a phone call because they were receiving phone calls like every two minutes, right? Like the door wouldn't stop ringing. So yeah. it was just me and Mr. Hagman. And he was so passionate, like showing me everything. And I was just like, Yes, I can't really understand, but through body language, like I can maybe work out what you're trying to say. Um, so that was just, yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it's a real experience to meet him. Um, I totally agree. I mean, I think Jean-Pierre um, Agman, if you think about his influence uh, on Patek Philippe and the minute mm -hmm. repeating. Every, yeah. every minute Peter Philippe going back for however many years has his stamp on it. And mm -hmm. I don't know, did he show you his personal stamp? So it, he took great pleasure in, in bringing out, and he, here's my stamp, the JPH stamp that, you know, you'll get on any, every case that he, he, he makes. And yeah, he's no. a lovely gentleman. And I, I, again, I just find that inspiring how Reshet can persuade Jean-Pierre Hagman, Mr. Hagman, to come out of retirement effectively and come and work for him. So yeah. you've got this 
gentleman who I don't know charitably in his 70s but I think maybe a little bit more I don't know yeah. um, uh, working with young you know Reshef in his early 30s and yeah and I know that what's on the horizon there is going to be phenomenal as well in terms of pieces coming out down the road so yeah, yeah. that that was amazing I really enjoyed that um, I was very keen to go in and see David Thune as well David Thune um, but all their pieces were out uh, mm. uh, on a roadshow, so we've left that to another time. Of course, I went back in to see at Pigeon. Uh, anytime I'm in Geneva, I pop in, say hello, um, uh, which is nice. Um, I've got, I think there's, you know, I was, part of the purpose was to go up to the AP Museum. Mm. Um, and we haven't interestingly talked much about Udemar Piguet uh, so far, but um, I was, uh, um, I think my wife and I, you know, AP looked after us extremely well. They um, were kind enough to put us up in a hotel uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva uh, and um, asked if they wanted a car sent down for us to bring us up. And I said, no way, that's a fantastic drive up to uh, Librasis uh, from the valley floor. I'm driving that one myself. So uh, we had a great day up at AP Museum, um, uh, catching up with the team there and seeing around. And I think we were one of the first um, non-Swiss visitors to it because of COVID, you know, it hadn't properly opened up uh, internationally and they'd not really been receiving many international visitors. Um, and uh, the way that they have the architect has been able to, I, I want to do some more research into the architect behind that because the way that they've been able to create the harmony of the building, the concept of the structure of the building, taking design cues from the world of horology and keep it open and bright and spacious and make it exciting and uh, a joy to walk around and visit. It, it, I mean, it was an incredible success, absolutely amazing success. Um, I'm really hoping on my next upcoming visit back to Switzerland that I'll be able to stay in the new hotel, which is opening any day now, I believe. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back there again. So, you know, we, I, I spend a fair bit of time, I was, had some meetings with people from JJ as well. So uh, it was great, it was fantastic. That's what I love about, you know, being able to get overseas and being able to travel and which I've missed out on is the ability to get over and spend time. And it's, you know, we have to play, uh, there's a balance between taking up people's time and being that demanding. Mm client saying I want to come and meet you yeah. um, uh, but so far I've been fortunate and people have been very gracious with their time but I'm conscious at the same point to not sort of take take too much advantage of that um, how was the curation at the museum like with the pieces did you get to you must obviously see AP vintage AP pieces are generally pretty rare anyway right like yeah even on the yeah. auction scene so to get it all in one roof is yeah. quite an experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I was really, really keen to see the sort of remaster, which um, ah, yes. you know, from the 1940s uh, or the, the, the original watch that resulted in the remaster as issued a couple of years ago, which I have. 
Um, uh, and I think they have some phenomenal pieces in the collection. I no doubt, much as Patek um, have done over the last, what is it, 20, 30 plus years since they opened the museum, they continue to curate that museum and seek out and search for pieces to add to the museum. No doubt AP will be doing the same, I'm sure. But you're right, you know, if you go back and you look at the Grand Complications Audemars Piguet uh, book, it has a, an index of all the different pieces and how many were issued and yeah. create, manufactured in a particular year. They made very, very few complicated pieces mm -hmm. in many years back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So uh, finding these pieces will be a, an art and a challenge in itself for them to continue to add to the museum, which I'm sure they intend to do. But as it stands and as it is at the moment, it's a fabulous blend of modernity plus a reflection on the history of the brand, which I felt was done in a very empathetic, meaningful, engaging way. So huge, huge, huge admirer of what they've achieved with that. Mm. I thought it was great that they bought um, for themselves in the museum, the original drawing of the Royal Oak from the recent auction. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I the well done, right? drawing uh, over half a million Swiss francs or something. I think it went for. Yeah. Um, I bought uh, the perpetual calendar one, but like the yeah. the, the Gerald Genta drawing, like of the his own brand. But uh, yeah. Anyways, when I I I when I was in, when I was there in November, I met um you know someone from the the retail store there and. Uh, when I won my my lot, I um, and we've been talking about it, right? Because Gerald Genta's wife visited their uh, boutique and was talking about the auction and whatnot. And um, I said, oh, you know, this will be really fun. Like, I know where I'll frame it and whatnot. And they're like, and she's like, did you know the AP bought it? I was like, oh, I didn't. But now it makes sense. Like, it should go to AP. It should go yeah. back to AP. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great that they did. I mean, it's a... Uh... My naive notions of being able to bid on it were put to bed very firmly. Yeah. So what numbers go, go through the roof. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could have picked you could have picked one up for a lot cheaper. <laughs> exactly, I know that. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how you know. Well, there you go. We talked about that, the hype and the sort of bubble that we're in, and how that is created. And you know, this year is going to be a phenomenal year for, for Udemar Piguet with 50th anniversary and we've already seen releases. Um, and, you know, I, I was very lucky last year to get the very last of the 15202 pieces mm. um, uh, in platinum with the green. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because they've continued that through into the 50th anniversary with the mm. 16202. Um, uh, but actually, for me, and again, this comes back to the romance of it, uh, whilst perhaps slightly disappointed that they brought the 16202 out in platinum with the green dial as well, um, uh, it was, for me, it was always, it's a case of if you put them both in front of me, I'd have chosen the 15202 because it has the GG derived. 2121 movement, which is the original movement. So the romance of the, the piece was important to me. But this year, we're going to see, if anything, even more of a bubble and even more hype around Odomar Piguet, for sure. For sure. Right. 
Well, you know, you've mentioned it and now you're retired and I just want to move on to, you know, away from watches. That was a very, I think one of the purest collector talks we've had. And I think probably like the audience listening, it's always very telling when me, Long Long and Jack don't really say much, right? Because we're just (laughs) transfixed and we're just listening and that's um, just because I'm gravitating on too long. That's no, true. it's not. I would say it's actually the truest form of when we're actually uh, actually offline and actually meeting collectors, right? We are not actually the, the protagonist. Mm. We're always like actually probably more quiet. I, I'm probably, uh, to be fair, I'm probably the loudest, but still, you know, uh, this is what I love. I mean, we're very good friends and I love when I go down to Hong Kong sitting with you. Uh, you know, I make it a thing where like selfishly, you know, I will meet you up privately because I just want to hear, you know, give you my full attention, right? With no other distraction because I just love the the interactions that we have. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it? reciprocating, yeah. Daniel, don't worry. It's, you know, I think there's a, uh, you, 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 I think be careful that you don't ascribe to me beyond what I'm worth or worthy of because it's like I'm just a naive humble uh, you know collector who indulges his passion with a, not necessarily a great deal of structure around it all the time or maybe that's what I do subscribe to you know and you, you feel like really downplayed that but you know I have the luxury of meeting a lot of collectors and you do too and I would say you know that is uh, with all respect, you know, to collectors, it's actually very hard traits to 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 keep and maintain, um, uh, especially in a group herd mentality. Yeah, no, you're right. Can I can I just say before we you move on to anything else? But I would really encourage people to listen to. You know, I did think, and I talked about Pamigiani in in when we spoke a year and a half ago, and. Uh, and I, I really, really enjoy, particularly the one with Guido Taranik talking about what what he his philosophy around luxury and so forth and how to to grow. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant episode. Um, and then again, more recently with Silas, um, at a collected man. Uh, you know, I'd met Silas only once here in Hong Kong, and I actually sent sent them a message after listening to that podcast because it was. And directly to them, just I thought that was a really good one. So I guess it's always interesting to hear from a collector because all our journeys are different. But I, the ones I really, really enjoy is sometimes getting a little bit of an insight into the business side of it as well. Mm. So you know, yeah. it works both ways. So I'm I'm always yeah. learning as well, Daniel. So keep going with this as well. Anyway, well, what, what yeah. do you we want we all on? we all like the the we like to be fair, like the industry ones. We always they can go like either way because you can get really generic PR answers, right? Which don't actually shed so much light on actually the question you asked and something that we wanted to keep that we do want to keep. That's really important to us is that we don't go to this, like, yeah, it's great to get these amazing guests on, but the podcast itself was always based around collectors and their own journey. And I think that we have to, you know, stay humble and keep to what we are, as well as enjoying the stuff that this allows us to do, which is, you know, reach our network to people that, quite frankly, we never thought that we would interview. Like at the start of this, like two years ago, and some of the guests that we have potentially lined up, 
there would have been no access. So I don't even know how you would like start that relationship to even get them on. And one thing that uh, we appreciate on the podcast I didn't appreciate at the time was when you do a podcast with somebody, you prepare, you research. Sometimes we do the pre-call and then you spend time with them on the podcast and then you might continue that after the podcast. But by the time you've done that, you've already invested four hours of pure time into that individual. And in that way, you've built that relationship with that person because it's very hard now, especially you know during COVID, to, to allocate four hours to a person. Like, yeah. And because of the podcast, we can go directly to asking questions without the you know, the initial like gentle phase, because that, that's the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it's subject for a different conversation, perhaps uh, with people more expert than I, but this is where the role of social media podcasts have um, from a brand development perspective for brands. And this has been touched on with the podcast I think you did with Oris. And uh, is becoming more significant as well. Uh, so brands are probably more receptive to your approaches, uh, mm. or the industry yeah. is perhaps more receptive to approaches uh, as a mechanism through which they can gain exposure because it doesn't have the advertising cost or budget which is associated with the billboards on Nanjing Road or you know or yeah. in, in central in Hong Kong. Uh, or wherever it might be, um, uh, they just have to invest some time. That's, that's the, the, the cost uh, associated with it. So you know, I think there's, a, it, there's value for them in engaging with you as well. So you know, I, it, it, there's something that they get from these. these yeah, I, I definitely think so. Because we talked about like social media and how um, intricate and developed that is increasingly becoming. But podcasts, you know, there is an insatiable appetite for knowledge on watches. And the mm. podcast medium is a is another avenue, but it's a very specific avenue on mm. where you want to have a discussion on watches and get the information from. Um, arguably, you know, if it's done correctly, it can shorten a lot of time in mm. finding the information you require if you click on the right one. Um, and a lot of other platforms just find it difficult to get to that depth very quickly yes Uh, absolutely totally agree yeah but uh yeah you have since retired uh you know that's something that's changed uh we've got two years older you haven't but you've uh retired (laughs) so (laughs) how has it been for you and generally you know how how do you keep yourself busy because you picked a well an interesting time to retire because of you know you're straight into COVID yeah um well as I touched on earlier I think you know when I moved to Hong Kong in 2015 I, uh, I'd been the sort of general counsel head of legal for, for, for the business the global head of legal um for 20 odd years so I'd already worked with my company for 20 years and moving to Hong Kong was with a set of goals in in mind and targets that I was looking to accomplish. And um, uh, so I, I'm, I suppose, as a person, as a character, as an individual, somebody who plans, um, uh, I can be spontaneous, but 
uh, I do like planning and I like the process of executing a plan and not necessarily the best person at finishing that off. I like having, surrounding myself with people who are brilliant at doing that sort of thing. Um, uh, but um, so I, even at the point of moving out to Hong Kong, I already had in my mind what the time horizon was going to look like. And so I had for, for many, many years targeted retiring around my mid fifties. Um, if I was fortunate enough to be able to do so. Uh, so uh, we, we had been back uh, at our home in Switzerland in 2019, before COVID, of course, uh, and my wife and I had sat down and talked about what the next few years were likely to look like for each of us. And I, I said, you know, well, I'm thinking I might retire um, uh, 2021. And um, if I'm going to do that, I want to tell my company, you know, best part of a year in advance so that we can plan the transition and the handover. Um, so we made that decision and then I told my, my direct boss, my CEO uh, and my direct boss, um, September, end of September 2019, um, that I wanted to retire in summer of 2020, um, 2021. So I'm getting my year, yeah, years wrong here. So this would be 2021. So it would have been September 2020. Um, uh, and um, that, so we, we had plenty of time in which to plan that transition across. And, you know, my, my intention in retiring was that we would stay in Hong Kong and my wife is successful in her own right with a very good career. Um, and is keen to keep that going for, for a number of years. Um, and so we want to stay in Hong Kong, but we didn't foresee, obviously, that COVID would be continuing uh, and that uh, Hong Kong would, as it currently is, be good, then ultimately go through its worst uh, episode of COVID. So it's rather put a bit of a... Um, pause on a lot of my plans that I did have for retirement, which were fundamentally, to keep it short, uh, I had a long list of things that I'd written down about cycling the length of Taiwan, cycling down the length of Vietnam from north to south, spending time in Bhutan, spending a lot more time back in Nepal, both climbing and with the charity that I'm on the board of, uh, spending time in Pakistan. I've never climbed in Pakistan. I wanted to go climbing in Pakistan. Uh, spending a lot more time skiing um, and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm fortunate that I've got a very supportive wife who's very happy and keen for me to be able to do that. Um, uh, and of course, COVID has meant that like many, many people on this earth, uh, we've all had to adjust. So I've not had that opportunity to do that. Um, but, you know, we're, in the scheme of things, it's a, it's a, a minor price to pay compared to what a lot of people are going through. Mm. Um, um, before, should we go one more question before the reverse around? Mm. Yeah, sure. Okay, so based on what you have just answered, um, I'm sure we all think this, you have a lot of positive energy, right? And I personally feel 
this is the reason you kind of make everything look very easy, like your career, your marriage, like can have your life together, basically, right? Um, and our lives are falling apart. Okay, so yeah, get your shit together. Um, yeah, I'm mean, trying. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have any practices or mantras that um, you think allow you to think this way? Um. Not as in I get up every morning and I, I spend half an hour doing yoga and some foundation. <laughs> no. um, uh, you know, I do do yoga. You got to what I would say. You got to work a damn sight harder to keep um, supple and uh, flexible when you get to my age, Lung Lung. So you know, um, <laughs> so, uh, but I. I am an optimist and I, I, I would rather be moving forward and thinking positively. And I think it's, it's not to say, uh, and at the risk of oversharing here, I think undoubtedly the last few years have seen many, many people have periods where they've been super anxious or very down. You know, and I'm not immune to that as well. I mean, everybody will have gone through that. Uh, but um, I don't know what it is about me or why I'm able to do it, but I, I choose to to try and be a bit more positive and optimistic and, and look forwards rather than... Um, what I am very, very good at is, even if you take my accident um, recently, um, it happened. Okay, forget that. There's no point being, you know, why did that happen to me? And you know, being all gloomy about it. Right? Okay. Let's get the let's get the operation done. Let's get the surgery done, and then let's get in and get to the physio, and let's go through the pain of working with the physio to regain the mobility in my in my shoulder and try and do everything that's necessary. So, so I'm not going to feel sorry for myself and look backwards. I'm going to choose mm. to 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 move forward, and that's. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think, I think there's a that what I think is there you're gonna you're gonna hate this thing <laughs> like for me you always have an aura an energy that is like clearly noticeable that that sits above everybody else like I know you hate that but that's how I feel when I'm like with you that and I'm sure I'm not the only one because when you are in the room and admittedly you know you are more experienced than us but i don't think that that is enough to do that like to have that impact where i sit there and i just want to listen and i want to engage and i want to learn and i want to see like what makes this person so like conduct himself in such a way that i can take from and and, and use it you know on myself you know, that's how i don't know if that's coming across in the podcast you know how you are but that's certainly how I feel. And I think, you know, Long Long would feel the same way. And I've, I've sang, you know, multiple praises to you, to Jacqueline. You know, I said, when you see me, Angus, you know, you'll, you'll know what I mean. Um, yeah, you don't, yeah don't, I think don't, that's what it's to introduce you to some of my friends of my age. They'll tell you you're talking absolute rubbish. <laughs> and you really don't know the true angles. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, again, you're, you're giving me more credit than I'm, I'm, I'm due for sure. But I mean, I'm, 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 I'm humble and honoured that you think that way. But it's not. I'm not sure it's deserved for sure. And I know 
<laughs> I know I've got plenty of friends who would say that. Yeah, I don't recognize that, Angus. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, thank you. I'll save you the embarrassment and we can move yeah. straight to the reverso round. So okay. please, yeah, you can go shoot your answers and make us feel uncomfortable now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, Lung Lung and Daniel, I know you both well. <clears throat> so I'm going to start with Jackie. Um, uh, and actually, I've got two questions for you, if I may. Um, I think we maybe slightly touched on these, and I've certainly heard you talk a little bit about them in the past. But, you know, firstly, I mean, are the mistakes, and I know you're relatively new to this, so this is why I wanted to ask you this question. <clears throat> what, you know, are there any mistakes that you would own up to having made so far in your collecting journey? Um, by that, I guess what I'm meaning is, what have you bought that you think have thought on reflection, actually, I shouldn't have bought that? Or conversely, what haven't you bought that you said, oh, I wish I had bought that one? So that's my first question. I'm gonna be an Angus and take notes. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second question? Give it, give it all to me. Okay, the second question is, um, I know you bought mostly, if not exclusively, online so far, mm -hmm. and that's been, uh, in no doubt partly as a, as a result of COVID and our inability to get out there and go and visit and see things. And so the question is really, do you feel that you have missed out on or lost out on the tactile element of being able to handle a piece and physically see it up close in person and look at it under a loop? Um, in, and maybe that has some relationship to the other question as well, the first question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, if I may, I'll also answer the second question first mm -hmm. uh, while, while we're on it. And before I answer that, I want to just do a quick little drawback to um, Dan's question to you, which is uh, like, what do you see in a brand to make you want to support it or build a relationship with it, right? For me, you know, when Dan was asking that question and I was listening to your answer, you know, the and Long's probably going to laugh at this, but the first thing that popped into my mind after you answered your um, question, Ingus, was a quote that I read on the midst of social media about, um, <laughs> now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but basically Kim Kardashian's new relationship. And... Um, <laughs> I'm so, totally down with it. Yeah, but it'll make sense. Just hear me out. Um, so so obviously, like Kim Kardashian was married to Kanye. Now they've separated, and now she's dating this an um, SNL comedian called Dave. Uh, uh, sorry, Pete Davidson, who you know has this image of him to, you know, he's not particularly the Hollywood dreamy looking type, right? And yet, if you look at his relationship relationships and past relationships he stated some of the um like hottest stars like you know most famous uh celebrities out there so like ariana grande kate beckinsale and now kim kardashian right so the western media was like what is it about uh pete davidson right like they were trying to figure it out like what is it about him like what's his allure to these and then one of his friends came out to the media and was like hey guys You've been analyzing his looks and how he portrays himself, which in 99% of the time is very humorously because he works in for uh, SNL, right? He's a comedian. 
but have you just considered that he might just be a very genuinely nice guy because you see all this media portrayal to being oh yeah he doesn't deserve this girl like he's such a joke but have you really just sat down and considered like how nice of a family guy he is and, and how you know nice he is to his parents and so anyways why did I bring that up is because you know going back to Dan's question for you like what is it that you see in brands that want that makes you to want to build a relationship with him and I just thought well maybe because they're just nice like yes they're a big conglomerate or a small independent brand but maybe it's just because they're nice people that you want to hang out right and what does that have to do with your second question a big part of me wish that I had the opportunity to have met the people that you have met. I haven't. The first time that I did have that opportunity was last year in November. And I had a very limited amount of time to meet the people. And it was such a busy time of the year. Didn't have enough and didn't want to, didn't have enough time to do the things I wanted to do. Primarily from buying online, I have missed out a lot of, chances to not only see the pieces in person but also meet the watchmakers and visionaries behind the brands so um i mean definitely i i i i i want to change that and and um i'm more motivated than ever to to go out to europe and switzerland and meet people and 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 hopefully they'll they'll you know give me their time and um and, and maybe go for a meal with them and listen to their stories instead of just reading their stories online, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's, I guess, my, que- my answer to your second question. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering not- where you were going to go with the whole Kim Kardashian story. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Does that make uh, sense? I was scratching my head a little bit with that one, but I, I, you got there and I understand. So. Okay, good. Because we did, a, we did a peer review episode and Dan and Lon were like, Sometimes you just need to shut up. Like what you're talking about doesn't make sense. So now I'm very uh, alert of it. Um, but but I hope that makes sense for you guys. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. Um, now for your first question about mistakes, actually, I've never really regretted what I have bought. Most of my regrets come from the pieces I have sold, and. Why have I sold them? Now, looking back at it, it's because I didn't take my time with them. And it all goes down to another one of your previous answers, which was patience. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had the patience and the time I had with each and single one of my pieces because I kind of bought a lot in a short time. Mm-hmm. I remember when, and you know, the first time that we spoke was on Clubhouse, and this was brought up uh, in one of the questions was like, um, again, like to do with regret or your favorite piece, I think. And my answer was very real. I don't have a favorite piece because I haven't had the time to make memories with my watches. Mm-hmm. It's COVID, couldn't travel. I bought a lot. Like, I think I bought somewhere between 40 and 50 watches within two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rushed into it in, in some sense. And, and my excuse for it, like if I were to try to make myself feel better, it's because I was 
trying to learn so much in a very short amount of time that I was getting pulled in all different sorts of directions. And um, that I, and I didn't have the time, the, the, the luxury of, of experiencing each um, piece before I bought them, right? Like meetups and whatnot. Maybe I wouldn't mm-hmm. have bought them, but um, I still wanted to experience them. And that's why I went ahead and bought a lot. Um, but in buying a lot, I also had to sell to, I mean, I don't have limit unlimited budget, right? To acquire new things to keep me going. And in essence, some of my regrets um, come from uh, selling pieces too early before I had the um, chance to 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 fully live with it and, and, and experiment and um, yeah, experiment with it. So yeah. um, relate to that, Jackie. Um, yeah. I, I think that's it's a good answer. And I don't think you it's not something that you need to beat yourself up about either. Not that I think you are, but um, I think uh, it's a process. It's it's a phase and it's an important part of, uh, and it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's an important part of the journey uh, for, for all of us. And it doesn't actually end. <laughs> That's the other thing. You know, uh, here am I 25 years into to this hobby and, um, uh, and it, it goes through peaks and troughs and you know, I'd say it's really only in the last 12, 15 years that I guess I've become more educated and, and you still find yourself questioning what is, your, what is your particular personal style and what is your particular personal philosophy when it comes to um, constructing your collection and through that journey as much as it is for me now as it is for you at the beginning of it you continue to make mistakes so I I choose to value those mistakes if one calls them that um, uh, and learn from them uh, and I think you know the, the difference now um, when in, in, in retirement is the phase I'm in now is partly perhaps a bit more consolidation, but equally there's still watches I'll want to buy and that will necess- by necessity mean that pieces have to be let go. Mm. Um, uh, so, you, you know, you in the different phases of the journey, uh, again, being very sort of simplistic and cliched about it, uh, you, Everybody goes through this, but what I would reassure you is that I'm still going through it in my mid fifties mm. after 25 years of the journey of, of, of buying pieces. And I think that your why I asked that question particularly was because your experience uh, and where you are at right now um, has has been wholly during a global pandemic, mm-hmm. a global pandemic, which has um, resulted in a set of circumstances which have meant that you've had to approach it in the way you have done. 
So mm. maybe it, it's going to think how liberating and how fantastic it's going to be when we can all just jump on a plane and we can, ah, let's go and meet up in Geneva and yeah, we'll, we'll go and visit this, this and this. I mean, your eyes will just, you know, you're going to have so much fun. Um, uh, well, so am I um, when we, we all get to do that again. So um, it, it'll be fantastic as and when it does happen. So, yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that answers it. Um, and by the way, from and you are also quite uh, discreet and humble about what you're buying. Uh, um, and I admire that. And I think um, that what I have seen of what you bought, you're doing a good job. So well <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Ever, you know, if you, if you, if you, want somebody looking after the odd piece in Hong Kong, I'm sure I can find a place for them. <laughs> so good yeah. on you. Move um, on, that, Angus, move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got that title. <laughs> um, okay, Daniel, your turn then. Um, you touched on it earlier um, a little bit, uh, and I know it's also true for Jacqueline as well, but Daniel, from your perspective, I think you, know, you and I do share in some certain characteristics in, in common in that you have a, an aesthetic passion uh, for your watches, I think. Uh, you're not, you, you, you seek out subtlety and classicism a little bit uh, and aesthetics. You're very understated. Uh, you're not seeking, as I see it, to uh, overtly display uh, anything on your wrist in any way. You're not about presenting any particular image. Um, so, and I respect that, I think that's a good thing. Um, uh, um, but, you know, talk to me a little bit about Movado. Uh, I know you touched on it earlier, but you just recently mm. acquired an absolutely beautiful piece. And, you know, I share some of that aesthetic values that perhaps led you down the road to choose that particular mm. Movado. And I see them in, vintage fashions and vintage shows and things like that. But it speaks to this point that if you're genuinely invested in this as a hobby and have, you know, and embarking on it with romance and um, hopefully still some naivety because naivety mm. creates that energy to invest mm. time to learn, then it can lead you to all sorts of fantastic older pieces. So I'm really interested mm learn the story a bit more about how you acquired that yeah well i'm very selective very selective on the pieces i decide to acquire it does take me a long time before i actually decide oh you know this is the piece for me um and that's because you know i get to touch and feel and talk to so many collectors and i get to really experience some of the pieces that they have acquired and then i find you know over time over two three months of handling certain pieces that initial lust to own it actually goes so I would say my journey is very different from many other collectors like Jack's where a lot of the experience is taken about actually purchasing it, owning it, and then getting rid of it. Um, I've, you know, with the way that the situation is with the watch market, there's just so much attention given to certain, not even pieces anymore, like just brands in general, right? That it's switched me off. And it just makes it a little bit more convoluted for me to navigate. And in that kind of situation, I would decide not to act. Mm -hmm. However, 
you you mentioned my vintage Movado. I've always been a fan of triple calendar styled watches, right? And you know, you have a particular, um, yeah. very special heirloom JLC, you know, triple calendar uh, watch. I've always loved the aesthetic of that piece. That uh, modern pieces, you know, I would say I would say aside from Oris, failed to capture the the, the purity and the cleanliness and you know of that dial design. Um, I know Vacheron have recently released it, but it just doesn't exude that energy that you find in the classic pieces. Agreed. And you know, originally it started with the Omega Cosmic because I still wanted a triple calendar with a, a, a brand, right? They started getting quite popular and they're not that um, hard to actually find, right? And part of, I, I do want something that is exclusive and still very difficult to find in good condition. And so eventually I like got onto, like kind of just through research on vintage Movado, uh, Celestographs, Astrographs, this kind of design and what more you know the ceiling fact was you know the brand is just not even recognized but generally by except as uh, collectors as being a, you know any kind of hype brand right but when you have something so beautifully designed there is no argument to it you know you you, you see it you look at not just the the dial but also the case and the lug design mm. how strong that is um it's so such a complete watch for me. And then once you factor in the size of the watch itself, how you know you mentioned that I don't really like to to you know have my watches speak before I even enter the room, right? Then yeah. that is just a perfect size for me and just works uh, as well because you know I do meet a lot of people. What do I want to say about myself? And I think it's encapsulated in that watch, right? Mm. And if you don't if it doesn't resonate with you, you know, maybe, you know, there's a good chance that the conversation I have with you about watches isn't really what's going to stimulate me uh, per se to a level. But if you do kind of value it, then maybe we can um, start that discussion, start that relationship. So that watch is very special for me in that it just encapsulates me. And we talk about another watch, right? You know, last year I also purchased the JLC Reverso, right? Again, Nothing you would like shout about, right? Scream about, but design, it yes. is just on point, right? I'm talking about not just, again, I look at the watches. It's great to have a great dial, but the case, it, it's, it's a complete thing. You should assess the aesthetics on the, com and the reverso has always been a piece that the thinner it is, that it, that elegance just oozes out right like and we see a lot of pictures on instagram where you just see the face on you never see the the, the movement of the piece on a wrist yeah and how it fits in with you know that piece right i think works so well with any cuff right well say so i think jj the reverso is comes in many different sizes of course yes and some people struggle with it on their wrist because of the shape of their wrist and so it is a case for me the reverso is one that you need to go in and be able to try on and try the different sizes to understand um uh, it'd be very difficult to buy a reverso online without having tried yes it. you yes. need to have them on the wrist i i would just add to that that i think um uh 
going and seeking out vintage reverses is something that that could be a whole rabbit hole that I could spend a lot of time down as well. So it's uh, in when one thinks about JJ's um, impact across the industry in terms of the movements they've made, whether it be, you know, like my triple calendar moon from 19, probably 48 or 49, I think it is. Um, and that movement that was used in many other far better known, perhaps, brands. Um, and I, th I think, you know, you can go back into vintage and the challenge is to try and be agnostic uh, at best, or in fact, totally ignore the name on the dial mm. and, and look at the quality. And I think you articulated it actually very well. Look at the quality of the case, of the dial, of the hands, the finishing, the movement, and revel and just bathe in that quality, not in whose name it is actually on the dial mm. necessarily as well. I think that's it's a good lesson for us all. Yeah. I think as you as you progress through the journey, you have more confidence to buy without the power of the brand. Mm -hmm. um, and also you have more confidence in your own ability to judge what is a good watch right like we're talking about the details and the subtlety of the balance of the dial for example yeah. i think at the beginning when you buy watches you you, you can tell like, i don't like this i like this but you maybe not be able to articulate why right but as yeah. you get more experience you can definitely pinpoint certain things and you know for example the dial has applied minute indices right mm. where do you where are you going to find that now <laughs> right um and then, you know, that journey with that watch as well, you know, I put the, put the voice out that I, I'm looking for that piece, right? Because it's, you know, I'm looking not for a rubbish version. I want a good one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Long Long was the one that actually pointed me to the direction of that watch because she was, she knew about it. She also loved it. And, you know, what's touching is that she passed on it to like, let me know about it, you know, and let me kind of acquire that. And that's why that piece is, you know, extra special because of, because of that, you know, it, it also, you know, there's a great friendship there. Yeah, it's lovely. It's, uh, you just haven't received the bill yet, have you? For the fine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how, many, how many dinners is going to be? Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, luckily, luckily, Long Long's cheap. Shake Shack all the way. But if yeah. I'm feeling yeah. like, if I'm feeling like, uh, yeah, economically stretched, I, I'll just take it to McDonald's, which is actually cheaper than Shake Shack. You know, yeah, like exactly. single hamburger, forget the like happy meal, you know, any package. You're like, no, you're just having a hamburger. Yeah, so That's thankfully right. she's, a, she's a cheap date. <laughs> Well, I didn't. I didn't know that part of the story. So. Well, you also didn't know that it's our couple's watch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Way. I got to say another thing is that it 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 certainly helped that you know um, Jacqueline bought her Movado, mm -hmm. which is just like Angus. If you've seen mine, yeah. Sometimes I, I looked at hers and I thought, okay, yeah, you've just you've wiped got it the now. floor. Great. Mm you've just wiped the floor like it, it's yeah but who was it that was making fun of me when i bought this i also made fun of me myself when i bought it because i bought this in, uh, almost two years ago i just never picked it up and um so when i bought it and i think it was like i it was a lot to, to, to have paid for it but i mean again from what we were talking about earlier right i'd never seen the watch in person but there was just something 
about it when when I saw the photos of it, right? First of all, it's a pink gold, uh, 1930s, 1940s, with black gilt dial, dauphine hands, and um, and and original buckle, original everything, and plus Chinese discs, right? Which when I saw it, I was just like, where do you find something like this? Now I wasn't familiar with vintage Movados at all. I just thought looking through the catalogs and it was the first time I ever bid on something on via auction. And when I bought it, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I, I think I went over my head. I don't think I should have paid this much because listen, the estimate for this watch was $3,000. And my friend was like, Jack, you should bid for it. It's only 3,000. I was like, okay. And I, I, I hopped onto the phone and I still remember the lady helping me. I was like, okay, starting bid. Helping, helping. Yeah, helping, helping. Uh, starting bid, I was, I was like, uh, 2,000, like 1,500, <laughs> 1,500. And then, oh, sorry, 8,000. I was like, what? <laughs> Someone bid 8,000 in the room. I was like, uh, okay. Would you like to try one more? Sure. <laughs> 10,000, sorry, 13,000. I was like, oh no, like, okay, okay. And then when I won, I was like, what have I done? Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, I, and I hadn't seen it in, in almost two years. I, I just received it. Dan helped me ship it out and I couldn't yeah, be happier. Right. Um, well, you, you, it, it's a beautiful looking piece, that's for sure. And uh, um, you've got to remember, I mean, a whole nother topic of conversation there. And I know you've had, uh, uh, Thomas and other auctioneers mm. on as well, but you've got to laugh when you read through auction catalogues at yeah. the estimate prices. Remember <laughs> why they're putting them like that. They want to be able to say, say at the end of the day they sold at X time the auction total auction ex estimate. So yeah, yeah, you've got to be some somewhat cynical when you look at these things. And uh, yeah. we, we all get sucked into looking at auction catalogs saying, oh, maybe I'll buy that one because look at the estimate <laughs> price. And then, I know. I was like, three thousand. Like the Corey Richard. The, yeah. The Corey Richard, yeah. Uh, Everest one. I bid, you know, I, I, I registered to bid on that. And um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I, I know the guy who bought it, though. Uh, okay. I think he bought it for... Uh, was it was 105 something thousand yeah. Years or something. So, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. okay. Um, in the interest of time, Lung Lung, I'm going to keep this one short because you and I know each other well, um, and I'm sure we'll we'll be able to share another cigar and birthday sooner or later. But the uh, um, it's uh, it's been nice to have you back in Hong Kong for a while now. I know you were back in Singapore for a lot of time um, over the last couple of years. So the question is, Hong Kong or Singapore? Let's put you on the spot. Oh, where would you prefer to one. be? Where, yeah, I mean, where, yeah. Okay, I'll I'll give you a little bit more of a clue to that. Is mm -hmm. to when one thinks about watch watches and watch collecting, and I know you're got a lot of friends in Singapore as well mm -hmm. in the watch mm -hmm. business and community as well. Mm -hmm. So, do you see a big difference at all between the two? Uh, that, maybe that's an easier way of phrasing the question. What's the difference between Hong Kong and Singapore in mm. terms of the watch collecting community? Okay, I think, okay, first, just to answer, because I think in the past week with like the potential lockdowns mm -hmm. happening, right? Um, just, I've, 
had tons of friends just message me like, why are you coming? Why are you not flying out? Why are you not leaving Hong Kong? And then it made me realize that, okay, I could, I do have the option to leave Hong Kong and just hide out in Singapore for a while, but it doesn't solve the actual problem that you do. You still have a life here and you still have to come back. Right. So um, I actually think that like, okay, I'm not born. uh, This is a long winded answer, but I'm not born an optimistic and positive person, but I have like, I think done a really good job over the past, I think at least 30 minimum 30 years of my life like rewired myself to be a very positive person. So even hearing, okay, there is potential lockdowns and the current situation that we're in, I'm actually very happy. Like I wake up every day and I feel like, oh my God, now I have more time to record a podcast, to do this and do that. And so I'm okay. And I just try and make the best out of everything, right? The situation I'm in. And with watch collecting, the uh, COVID has also highlighted two things um, because it's shown that the way my friends, okay, just watch, watch collectors, mm-hmm. right? And people who are in the hobby, they are generally more calm, like with the situation. I mean, they have had like, uh, they've been getting 50,000 cases per day for a while already, right? But from the beginning, from the, from day one, when this was happening, when it started with 10,000, 10,000 every day, they were like, yeah, uh, we uh, we have faith in the government. Uh, there's a plan. Everything will take care of itself. So they were still very happy, like just actually shopping for watches online, just looking for other avenues to enjoy the hobby. Whereas I think with Hong Kong, we kind of get this feeling like if you get COVID, you're a criminal. Everyone needs to avoid you and you're going to get sent to camp, right? <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of absolutely. negativity around it. Instead of being like, don't worry, there's a plan. Like, it will, like we're not going to live in this situation forever. So watch collecting wise, I do kind of miss Singapore in the sense that people are just calm and they just, they're patient and they find other ways to enjoy the hobby. And a lot of the people that I meet up with in Singapore uh, will go for, will go to a wine bar and we'll look at watches. They have kind of even shifted into new hobbies. So they're now studying cigars. So it just makes me appreciate that people there have this kind of like very slow and like kind of like island mentality, like take life easy and mm-hmm. like, yeah. That's what well, I'm you thinking. have you have the you have the um, advantage of being able to live both both options and jet, well, nor in normal yeah. uh, circumstances, yeah. being able to enjoy and live both options. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you know me, uh, the, the question is born out of being Singaporean by birth. And yet here I am yeah. spending my working years in, in Hong Kong. So I have an affinity with both countries as well. So um, it would be difficult for me to choose uh, if I were put on the spot, to be honest. But, you know, it would we'll come through all of this and uh, I, I'm keeping a bit more of a low profile as case numbers rise in Hong Kong just yeah. because I'm post-surgery and trying to re- focus on recovering from that but um, uh, but yeah um, it won't be long before we're sharing cigars yeah. again Lin-Lin. definitely definitely right. right well we'll go to the pump push around and uh, Jacqueline shoot uh, okay, so on the waiting list, we're, we're big readers here. Um, what would be your one book recommendation that you've read recently or just overall? 
Well, I don't tend to read a lot of fiction. Um, I um, tend to read um, history, uh, um, factual stuff. Um, I've got a pile of books both here and in Switzerland just waiting to be read as part of my retirement project, which uh, still waiting to be read because I, you know, I thought I'd have a lot more time on my hands and it seems I don't. Um, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of just diving deeper into watch books. Um, uh, um, so I'm trying to think specifically right now, I'm in the middle of two books. Uh, one is charting uh, the history of the Lancaster bomber in the Second World War uh, back in the 1940s and following some cruise stories of their experiences during that. And the other one is by a Hong Kong historian. Um, uh, well, no, not a historian. He, and, and I read it out of, from a sense of slight bemusement, um, just recognizing how much Hong Kong has changed in a relatively short period of time over, let's say 40 years because it's a story of a maritime, a British maritime police officer who uh, in his time and his whole career spent uh, in charge of one of the um, uh, maritime police patrol boats uh, going through the time of you know, the Vietnamese boat people exiting uh, and trying to escape what was happening there through to smuggling across border between Hong Kong and, and so forth, but also full of anecdotes about what is now 1881 heritage and what was the old maritime police headquarters here in Hong Kong and the old mess offices and just sort of a slight sense of uh, amusement as to, um, you know, the, the, those old days are definitely very different and rightly so to what we're, where we are in now in Hong Kong. Um, in terms of the way things are operating. But um, I don't have a, a quick short one, I'm afraid, that gives you any sort of meaningful life stories. <laughs> uh, well, if you like those books, right, I, like, you like the history side, I got to recommend, like, I recommended like the Cartier book by mm. Cartier Brickwell. Like it has that historic side to it and is nonfiction, but reads very well. Found that very, a great book. Um, yeah. And then, one. yeah. There's also the Grand Complication, which I don't know if you've read, but it uh, details the two arguably biggest Patek collectors, you know, Packard and Henry Graves, yeah. and their journey and their rivalry. And it goes into their life and what happened in their life. And it, it really did, like, change my perspective, you know, on the, the watch journey and uh, fantastic book, you know, set in... His, you know, you go through a, a period of American history. It takes mm -hmm. you through. And I did enjoy that journey because, you know, you learn from that history as well. So, yeah, two books maybe. That's good. Thanks for the tips. Yeah. Right. So number two, um, when you used to hire people, apart from obviously being skilled at what they're supposed to do for their job, what, is, what are, were the other factors, human factors that you look for? And were there any particular questions that you asked that you thought were unique to you? By the time I would typically be interviewing somebody, I would assume that their skills uh, had been thoroughly tested and that the, the people were, were competent at their jobs uh, and, and 
so for me, it becomes more a um, question of personality and fit within a team. Um, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily ask any specific question, but what I was very much interested in was the, the process of the conversation and the interaction I would have. And so, you know, every question or every quip or every little aside would be with a view to actually eliciting uh, an indication of the behavior and the person's character and personality, uh, and thereby allowing me to assess their fit within a team. Um, it's important not to uh, necessarily have everybody who is similar. In fact, the opposite. You want people with very different uh, characteristics, personalities. I've already alluded to the fact that, you know, I'm great at driving forward or having a vision around a project and being able to put in place uh, the structure and, and the skeleton frameworks around how we might deliver on something. Uh, when it comes down to the execution, I need the expert people around about me who have this particular specialism, but I need them to be able to work with everybody else as well. So you want to, it's occasionally good to have people um, who may, you know, rub you up the wrong way, to put it bluntly on occasion. Um, uh, so I think as a hiring manager, the worst thing you can do is surround yourself with people who are like you. Um, you want people who bring something different to the table, who may annoy you, who may challenge you, who may irritate you from time to time, but you value them because of their fact, the very fact that they are not you, that they are bringing something different. Mm. Okay. Good, good answer. Number three, the hardest thing about retirement. I haven't found it yet. <laughs> wow. Okay. You're just enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nine months, it's nine months in. Um, I always said I'd, I'd allow myself a year uh, and reflect. Um, uh, and yes, we've talked about the fact that through circumstances, I haven't been able to do any or many of the things, certainly. I've explored a lot more of Hong Kong um, in terms of getting out on trails, I've done a lot more rock climbing. Uh, here in Hong Kong as a result of being able to get out midweek rather than just at weekends. So I've done some amazing rock climbing here in Hong Kong, which has been fantastic. I've been out on some trails in, up in the New Territories, which I wouldn't have done previously. Um, uh, um, but no, there's nothing, I have zero regrets about having retired. It might have been easy to say, well, I wish I had just kept working another year. But then I think about everything that I have been able to do, even in spite of the challenges that we've faced over the last year, uh, then no, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that I would point to at all, Daniel. I have okay. a follow-up question, which is, um, do you think you will ever come out of retirement? And, um, the industry person, you know, Jean-Claude Bivac recently came out of retirement, right, to do something? So do you yeah. see yourself coming out of retirement? Uh, I'm very clear um, on one thing uh, for certain, Jackson, that is that I, I want to own my own calendar. Uh, I want to be the master of my time. Uh, so I would never, ever go and work somewhere where uh, 
you know, I it was a, if there ever was such a thing, a nine to five job, uh, where I was an employee, at whatever level, you know, even if I was a CEO, um, in fact, especially if I was a CEO of something, or at a senior leadership position of something, because that demands much more commitment from you uh, in terms of leadership, because the tone is always set from the top. Um, so it is by exemplifying the drive and the skills and the integrity and the tone as a leader that you know that pushes forward the success of a business so I, i'm very clear that i will never you know a lot of people assume that when i announced that i was going to retire so i think i publicly announced it in january 21 ahead of retiring at the end of june because by then the press would start getting wind of it and because the regulatory stuff that we would have to go through as well. Um, uh, um, a lot of people assumed that I would pop up somewhere else, you know, six months later after a non-compete type thing and that I was, uh, you know, I was, I was going to, I'd going, I was going on, but I, you know, I was absolutely clear. I'd worked for one company for 25 years. I was loyal to them. It's, I, I know it's anachronistic in this day and age, but, uh, a great, you know, great believer in the, the culture and the values of the company I work for. Um, admire it hugely. Would never imagine myself working anywhere else. Mm. So that's, you know, I'd ne definitely never go back to full-time work. Um, you know, the, the beauty of being retired is you have the opportunity to, to speak to people, to do a lot more different things. You know, I'm on the board of the, the Himalayan Trust, as I mentioned. Um, uh, I want to give more of my time to that, uh, assuming I can get back to Nepal. And, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying dabbling around in the fringes of the watch industry, um, should something present itself. And yeah, I'd love to get involved, but uh, on my own terms and on my own time and not because money is driving me. Quality of life and experiences and friendships and people, and uh, that's what's most important to me. Uh, okay, my next question is a daily habit that you have kept throughout your career and now retirement. Uh, none, actually. That's, that's quite weird. I can answer that quite quickly. Um, uh, Yoga. Yeah, no, not even. Um, I, I, I don't, don't have habits. I mean, you know, I can imagine some people saying, I pick out the watch I'm gonna wear and then choose my clothes accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, so choose the watch first and then put the clothes on to, to, to match whichever watch I'm wearing. But um, the, the genuinely, I'm not, a, I'm not a creature of habit in a structured, you know, I, I, I must conform and I, I don't, I don't, um, I, I, I'm not superstitious uh, at all. Uh, I don't have superstitions. I, I'm not a person who I have to put in a left cuff link before a right cuff link or something like that. I don't have these sorts of habits. Um, uh, maybe I'm just a bit more simple and happy-go-lucky. <laughs> For sure. Uh, next question. Oh, it's your turn to ask, Dan. Oh, yeah. The next guest we should have on that you think would be good and that maybe you could facilitate. Well, I don't know if I can facilitate it, but um, 
I, I think I, I'd, I've said, I think I've said this to you before, Daniel, but I'd, I'd love to hear from Julie Crowlers, um, uh, who, for the listeners who don't know, I've admired from a distance, um, who's uh, an illustrator. Uh, she, she would probably be very resentful of me terming her as such, I don't know, an artist who, who um, draws fabulous uh, pictures of watches. And she was invited on to GPHG uh, right. um, as well uh, as part of the voting committee for, for the most recent GPHG. Um, and I, I'm intrigued to learn more about her. I, again, it's just a inquisitiveness as to what's her background, what brought her into watches, how is she now making a career out of illustrating watches. Um, and I, I can't necessarily facilitate that for you, but uh, I would be very interested to hear. hear I have my you. ways. Don't worry. I'm very, con- I'm very convincing. I'm sure I can reach out and say hello and I'll commission a piece. <laughs> Uh, by the way, that was a misleading <laughs> point of entry. I actually want you to speak to the waiting list podcast. Um, yeah. Okay. Long, long, you have the last, last three. Question. Um, what is something about Hong Kong culture that you have picked up that has changed how you think or behave? Until I broke my shoulder, I find myself walking around the streets with my head buried in my phone, walking into people like everybody else. Um, <laughs> and I wish I hadn't picked that one up, that behavior up. <laughs> it seems to be a, you know, we, we live in a little bubble world of our phone and two-foot radius mm-hmm. rather than that. Um, uh, um, uh, you know, Hong Kong's a melting pot. It's, it's, it, it's, Strength is its resilience, uh, the, the, the changes it's going through um, for some are uncomfortable, of course. Uh, we're unfortunately seeing a lot of exodus from Hong Kong at the moment. Um, but you know, you go back over centuries and what's true of Hong Kong is how it's continued to, to reinvent and be resilient. And uh, I, I don't doubt that that will continue to be the case um so uh why i i like it so much is because of the um the opportunity to 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 open your eyes and observe and listen and learn and you know just recognize and be open to experiences that you're not familiar with. And, and in spite of the fact that I grew up in Asia, you know, I'm always learning still. Um, Cantonese is still too much of a struggle for me beyond taxi language, I'm afraid, I have to admit. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, um, where is the perfect place to retire? Hmm. Um, Edinburgh, Hong Kong and Switzerland. Okay. <laughs> um, why not singapore why not singapore yeah well maybe maybe that's a, an, an insight into you know um in spite of having been born and grown grown up in singapore i mean i i i, I you know i i do love hong kong mm. um uh but um I, i'm not sure i could retire to one place is, mm. is probably yeah. the answering that yeah. I'm, I'm too yeah uh I'm too energized by experiences um, and those can be 
very different in the nature of those experiences. Some, they, they may be expensive on one hand, they can be cheap as chips and living in a tent in the mountain on the other hand, um, boiling snow to create water for your soup. Mm. Um, you know, so retiring in one place to me feels like my worst nightmare. Mm. Mm. This is the last one. Ooh. One thing that you want to do that you haven't done yet. Probably difficult. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, I could answer that in a slightly tongue in cheek way or in a very, very mm -hmm. serious way, but mm. there's all different ways of answering that really. Um, let's think, what, what have I not done that I'd really like to do? Yeah, um, the tongue in cheek ways would probably be X rated. So let's leave those aside. Um, <laughs> um, I, it's not that I didn't, haven't necessarily done it. It's that I would like to spend more time doing some of these things. And I think my wife and I were reflecting the other night and just how fortunate we were that we took advantage of the ability to travel in Asia before COVID. Mm. And so what I'd like to do more of, not that I haven't done it, is spend more time traveling in China and Japan in particular. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in China and I've spent a lot of time in Japan. And, but in many instances, this has been through work rather than mm -hmm. um, pleasure. Uh, and I would feel somewhat regretful if, if we were ever to, to leave Hong Kong and, and move back to Europe. I, I say leave Hong Kong, I would hope that, you know, by the time we're permanent residents, we'd always find ourselves coming back to Hong Kong from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, but I would feel regretful if, if we hadn't been able to spend more time um, exploring. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a bit of a cop-out answer, wasn't it, Lung Lung? <laughs> yeah, this is good. Great answer. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I kind of like think, uh, you know, through, while we're recording this podcast, I was like, yeah, forget the podcast. I'm just like here to have fun and chill with my friend and had a great, great time, especially the fact that I'm recording this in quarantine. You know, it was a great, yeah, it was a great experience for me. So thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. It's it's a pleasure, and uh, I'm sorry. I I know I, I do waffle on a lot. So um, you you can feel free to edit this into a fifth of the time that we've taken. <laughs> so for listeners, when you do end up listening to this, this is actually an eight-hour conversation we've just had. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I, I was listening to uh, Cole Wallace yesterday, and that's just literally just over an hour. And I thought, well, that was a bit short. <laughs> I thought, like, is that it? Like, is that over so quickly? You know? Um, yeah, so I'm kind of maybe getting used to this. I just put it on when I'm, like, working and I'm just listening. And it's just very, you know, it helps the fact that I'm in quarantine as well, right? I have, lit I have no sure. human interaction. And yeah. uh, it was very, very it's, pleasurable. It, it's, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure just chatting with you guys. And I do see it as that. I don't necessarily think anybody's going to learn from me, but um, it's, it's fun chatting with the three of you. Um, and uh, Jacqueline, I really look forward to the time that you and I can meet in person uh, in Geneva, hopefully, or wherever it might be. Um, but in, in the meantime, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate, appreciate it a lot. Okay, guys, we'll see you on the next one. Hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Bye-bye.
as always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.